Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. Hello and welcome to this podcast on intersecting vulnerabilities in humanitarian disasters. My name is Ekaterina Zhukova. I'm a researcher at Lund University in Sweden. And this initiative is supported by the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. The abbreviation is NCHS. Uh, this initiative is co-organized together with my colleague, Antonio De Lauri, a research professor at the Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway and director of the NCHS. And today we have a pleasure to talk to Susanna Hlitschkova, a senior researcher at Sierra Leone Urban Research Center in Freetown. Susanna is a social anthropologist, a development practitioner, and a humanitarian worker with an extensive experience from fields in West Africa, South Asia, Central Europe, and the UK. And humanitarian disasters uh, is one of her main um, areas of interest. A warm welcome uh, to you, Susanna. Thank you. Uh, so let me start with um, an exploratory question. How have you come to do research on humanitarian disasters? Um, uh... So it was all a bit of a coincidence, I would say. Um, so I did my master's in social anthropology and in South Asian studies with specialization in Tamil. Mm -hmm. uh, I did this in Prague in the Czech Republic. Uh, and uh, during the course of my studies, I have frequently traveled and studied in India. Uh, also doing research among mountain tribes in southern India, and that sparked my interest in development. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when I graduated there, the Indian Ocean uh, tsunami happened in December 2004. So I became a volunteer in the post-disaster rehabilitation uh, working for a small NGO in eastern Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. uh, they invited me because I spoke Tamil. And then um, basically that experience of, you know, I, I was suddenly thrust in this world of um, NGOs and uh, post-disaster recovery. Uh, and I was thinking to myself, oh my God, what's going on? You know, there are lots of social processes taking place. So this sparked my interest in disaster studies and in humanitarian and development studies. And based on that experience, I then uh, went on to develop a course in applied anthropology and, mm -hmm. um, and aid. And uh, I also uh, did, um, I also uh, thought of 
doing a PhD. I, uh, because as a Tamil speaker, I was hired by the Red Cross uh, to interpret in prisons in the rebel and government held territories during the Sri Lankan civil war. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sparked my interest in conflict studies as well. So I, and, and in gender. So, so the focus of my PhD was the impact of war on the social status of Tamil women. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yeah, that, 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 that was roughly it. Um, and then I uh, also worked uh, in the UK uh, for the University of London as a postdoctoral researcher on a project called Organizing Disasters, which was looking at uh, state-led disaster management practices in the UK, Switzerland and India. And uh, so that led to me looking at uh, disaster focused organizations uh, and it, it, it sort of introduced me also to science and technology studies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can see that as I also when I was introducing you you have a very rich experience and now I will ask you a question about from all this rich experience which finding or discovery um, was the most important for you or maybe not only important, but also um, made you maybe surprised or aware about certain things that you were not aware before? Um, uh, so that, that's a very good question. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I would, so I think there are two things I would like to say. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I think I really, through all this experience, I I have always come across, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of human spirit. Mm -hmm. I think that people always try to make things better. I have seen times and again how people have faced adversity bravely, uh, devising the best possible ways to navigate their difficult situations. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I would also say that organizations are also trying to make things better uh, and uh, uh, there is this whole new paradigm of disaster response bodies being uh, being built up everywhere uh, around the global south. So it's quite interesting for me to see how these new organizations go about uh, devising their own emergency responses. Uh, so that's one thing. People try to make things better all the time. Mm -hmm. But the other finding that I kind of came across was that these processes, like disasters and wars, have mm -hmm. very similar, have some very similar traits. Mm -hmm. They both reveal and shake up the existing social orders. Mm -hmm. So they both expose social networks and vulnerabilities of different groups. However, uh, wars and disasters frequently operate on different timescales. So disasters, with a few exceptions like famine, seem to be sudden, whereas we know like the research is showing us it's not the case. Mm -hmm. However, to the kind of to the untrained eye, they seem to be sudden. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they uh, they take people by surprise to the Republic and they shake up things quite quickly and then leave things to fall in place. Mm -hmm. For example, um, uh, like the, the, the aftermath of disasters is interesting as people come together and decide how things should be from now on. Like, for example, in Sri Lanka, initially the authorities said that from now on, they would, uh, only, they would only allow buildings to be built that are 100 meters away from the sea. Mm -hmm. But of course, that didn't work uh, because that's, that wasn't compatible with the way people were living. So, uh, so some of these ideas do not hold for very long, uh, but what is really interesting is to see which changes really stay for the long term. So, and even today you can feel the impact of some disasters in some places, they have like very distinct different feel to it like you know when you go to Bhopal in India which suffered the chemical disaster in the 1980s, uh, still you know, when I, when I visited there some 30 years on, it still felt very different to the rest of India. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I would say that conflicts tend to uh, be in the making for a while. Mm -hmm. And then when they start, they tend to take years. Mm -hmm. And depending on the politics of the conflict, they, uh, they alter social order in one way or another. Uh, so again, I'm going to use the example of Sri Lanka, where the Tamil Tigers really tried hard to change notions of gender whilst operating with the traditional concept of chastity when they deployed Tamil Tigresses, the armed women, which went completely against the whole concept of gender in Tamil society mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. So you have mentioned a very interesting process. First, this understanding of disasters and conflicts and um, the differences, uh, temporal differences, but also certain similarities, and also how uh, there is this desire and need uh, to make uh, things better all the time. And as you have um, uh, had an opportunity to be both a researcher and a practitioner, uh, what kind of glasses do you think one needs to have when one is a, a practitioner to see these things? And what kind of glasses one need to have when one is a researcher? And to what extent practitioner sees one thing and researcher see, sees another? Or to what extent they might see the same thing? Oh, okay. So as a practitioner, you're, you have very different responsibilities than when you are a researcher. I think when you are a researcher, you want to describe things as they are. Whereas when you are a practitioner, you are bound by funding, basically. Mm -hmm. you, you, uh, you need to fit in the framework of whoever gives you money mm -hmm. for your work uh, because they have the power to, to take the money away from you and from the people that you are working whose lives you're working to improve mm -hmm. so uh, but also as a as a, as a practitioner um, you you know th th there are hierarchies uh, there are 
there, there are also always tensions between people in the field and people in the headquarters uh, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, they have they, they operate in different contexts I would say mm -hmm. uh, so you know often you would see people in the field being upset by the headquarters decisions and vice versa mm -hmm. um, and uh, as a researcher I think you are very much alone you are uh, you are uh, and and you you have to um, you have to be skillful at like getting to people, getting to getting them to talk to you. You have mm -hmm. to build relationships. Uh, you have to work ethically. Uh, so these are two very different roles. Mm -hmm. uh, and but but I think that uh, research can can really enrich the way practitioners operate and I think that on the other hand uh, without practitioners researchers wouldn't have much to research <laughs> mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. so it's very uh, I find I find uh, I'm very grateful to be able to have had both hats on mm -hmm. because I think I can I can sympathize with both and I'm very much uh, uh, an advocate for for um, for research and practical action going together mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also in relation to that uh, you mentioned uh, tamil language uh, when mm -hmm. you were uh, describing uh, your trajectory your professional trajectory and i would like to ask what role is for language for people who um, are both practitioners and researchers when they work in the field what is the role of the language to understand how disasters work and unfold well i think that uh, speaking local languages uh, it, it, it is very um it is it is very helpful uh, mm -hmm. i think i think i would go as far to say that it is essential mm -hmm. uh However, speaking Tamil, for example, like some languages are extremely hard to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say Tamil is one of them. Uh, so it's uh, so so. Whilst researchers should make every effort to to learn the language, uh, they may never be as fluent or you know to understand it all so so i think it's also important to to always try and use uh local research assistance mm -hmm. because it can easily happen that you know one may uh understand some like one may uh speak local language and have a certain understanding of things but not probably not not in not totally in depth so uh so i think i think it's important both to speak the, the language to try and speak the language but also to use local research assistance mm -hmm. and how did you uh, learn tamil what was your experience with learning uh, so um tamil uh is a is a dravidian language so its structure is uh very different to uh to european to most european languages mm -hmm. and it's uh so so for example if you want to say 
John went uh, to buy bread, you mm -hmm. would say bread, like in Tamil, the order would be bread, buy, went, that, John. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so so it's it's a very uh, it's a very uh, different uh, grammar mm -hmm. and uh, i would say that it's that it's uh, useful in in it was useful for me to use rote learning so memorizing sentences mm -hmm. uh and in most languages this is this is not the way people say that you should learn language but actually in when the structure is so different it's actually useful to learn by memorizing mm -hmm. and uh i i was lucky because uh i i i had the opportunity to study tamil for five years in prague at the uh at the university mm -hmm. and i also could study at the uh, french institute in pondicherry in south india mm -hmm. so uh uh, yes, but it's, uh, I mean, the Tam Tamil also has many dialects, so when I came to Sri Lanka, I had to learn a lot about the local dialect uh, to adjust myself to it. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think language is never-ending learning process. Mm -hmm. And do you think because um, it has a different uh, structure to what we in the, this part of the hemisphere I used to, has it also um, made you look at the social processes in different way, just because it had a different structure to what we are used to? Uh, I mean, un understanding the language made me, uh, I, I think I had compared to other other researchers, I had mm -hmm. uh, I had advantage of uh, uh, yes understanding the social processes a bit better. So, mm -hmm. for example, uh, like one um, uh, so so in in Tamil people would say uh, would address each other Akka and Anna, which means uh, sister and brother, mm -hmm. and or or actually older sister and older brother. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they are younger, you would say you would call them Tangachi, uh, which is younger sister, or uh, Tambi, which is younger brother. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, uh, another researcher who uh, basically proposed that uh, because also the Tamil Tigers use this. Uh, mm -hmm. A researcher proposed that basically they were they were insinuating familial relationships uh, as to prevent people from uh, from becoming uh, romantically involved. Mm -hmm. And basically, I said, but but in my view, that was totally not the case because everyone called this, uh, you know, everybody called uh, use these ways of addressing each other. Uh, in the wider society all the time and it didn't prevent them from getting pr romantically involved <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, you know sometimes uh, some some theories can be far-fetched if you don't understand the language in general terms you know if, mm -hmm. if you yeah so so i think um yeah 
definitely learn the language of your of your of the society where you're working yes definitely (laughs) (laughs) and challenge yourself as well yes on the way yes You also mentioned when you were talking about Tamil at the beginning that um, you developed a course which is called Applied Anthropology and Aid. And in Mm -hmm. this regard, I would like to ask what is the role of anthropology, do you think, in how we understand and study humanitarian disasters? Um, So I would say that anthropology has the tools to allow us to truly listen and mm-hmm. to see the real situations people are living in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps us understand why people are making choices they are making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of this uh, non-judgmental uh, nature of anthropology, I would say it is helping, it, it is a key uh, to help devise the best possible solutions because it is, I think anthropology is providing a true picture of what is. Today, we have a concept that has become very popular and it has been migrating uh, through different disciplines um, and including anthropology and it is disaster vulnerability. And I was wondering whether you have been working with this concept and what is your take on this concept? Uh, well, um, so uh, I think it's it's a useful uh, term, uh, mm-hmm. disaster vulnerability. And uh, in my research, it, it seems to be associated mainly with precarity. Mm-hmm. So with the lacking of predictability and lacking job and material security. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that, for example, informal settlements uh, are a a good example. So currently I live in Sierra Leone and I work on projects, on research projects in in informal settlements in Freetown. And um, here, uh, because the informal settlements, because of their informal nature, they are not connected to any services such as drainage, electricity, you know, water sanitation. So, so they suffer a lot from flooding and landslides. And so people living in, in, like in precarious situations are more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I mean, again, uh, vulnerable, like this concept can also be, there can be this concept of um, conflict vulnerability in a way because mm-hmm. also the it was always the poor and orphaned in Sri Lanka who were drafted to fight in the in the civil conflict whereas mm-hmm. those who had any means uh, they fled yeah they they mm-hmm. so, so and there's a big um, diaspora uh, of uh, Sri Lankans who live around the world who have fled the conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say uh, you are vulnerable when you are poor. And these are two, th- this connection is undeniable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you also mentioned just now about informality. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you what you are currently working on, and you have just started. So I'd like to ask you to tell a little bit more about your current project in Sierra Leone and also uh, how we can understand informality through precarity or precarity through informality. Mm -hmm. So, uh... So I now live in Sierra Leone. I have been here for two years and I have been involved in different projects. Um, so mm -hmm. my attention here has been drawn mainly to health systems mm -hmm. uh, because I initially worked for a, mm, for, for a stroke, uh, for, for a research on stroke uh, mm -hmm. in Sierra Leone. And then I, and then I started also working on a and COVID uh, and um, uh, so I would say that the health system in Sierra Leone is I mean the biomedical health system is not very robust mm -hmm. uh, basically the life expectancy in Sierra Leone is currently 54 Mm -hmm. uh so it's uh the system is very weak there's also a large network of traditional and faith-based healers mm -hmm. and um i would say that uh the whole of the population have very uh, have a very like most people in Sierra Leone live in poverty. So, uh, and most of them suffer uh, from ill health in one way or another. So it's, um, I, I, th I think we can also say that, you know, there are whole states, whole mm -hmm. countries who are suffering precarity. And we can see that here in Sierra Leone, which is like one of the least developed countries in the world. Yet it has, uh, you know, it, it has a lot of natural resources. And so it brings to the fore the global order, the global hierarchies, the global connections, mm -hmm. because while the country has lots of natural resources, the local population don't see much of it, to be honest, so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you think that this um, experience will also inform your future research plans or is it too early to say? <laughs> 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 so there is also uh, the academic precarity. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I would I would say, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for all these research opportunities that I've had. Uh, I would say uh, this, 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 uh, all this experience is informing my interests, uh, but I think it also depends on uh, what academic opportunities there will be. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's, it's probably at the moment, it's too early to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And what uh, continent it will be, because as I said before, you had a, a very rich experience in different continents that allowed you to look at different things from a very localized perspective. And I would like to go back to our discussion on 
being a, a practitioner and a researcher at the same time. And if you were to give a message or um, a kind of a words of wisdom to people who both work as researchers or practitioners or uh, either someone is just researcher or practitioner, what would you say to them in relation to how we can understand uh, humanitarian disasters today? Uh, well, I think um, that a lot has been done in bringing uh, research and, practitioner and, and practitioners together. For example, mm -hmm. Ebola uh, was an amazing example when there was a um, platform of uh, social scientists uh, uh, providing materials for practitioners mm -hmm. uh, to help them uh, make the response more effective. And uh, so, so I think uh, these two fields are coming together. So if mm -hmm. you're a practitioner, uh, there is always some research that is relevant to you. And I think researchers are really making an effort now to make their work digestible mm -hmm. to practitioners. I think um, so. And if I was to say something to researchers, I would say, uh, while it's great that you are working on academic papers, make sure that the, uh, that the essential points that you are trying to get across are also uh, written in a digestible format, like in a you know executive summary or mm -hmm. uh, or uh, or brief or something like that, to uh, so that even practitioners can incorporate the lessons that you've learned into their work. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Zosanna, uh, for this very fruitful conversation that uh, we had today. I would like to remind our listeners that uh, our guest today was uh, Susanna Richkova, a senior researcher at Sierra Leone Urban Research Center in Freetown. Uh, you can follow us if you want to learn more on our website. It's www.humanitarianstudies.no and we will be back. <laughs>